He's in the building! Drink the moment. Drink it. I said, empty your mind. Coquettish and coy. Ow. Ow. What? Wickedly talented. More than great. It was historic. Crack is world. Oh, good for you. I have to apologize. One of the hottest. Hello, and welcome back to The Reheat, a podcast that re-examines the hottest celebrity news and scandals of yesteryear and asks, how would we react to the same events if they'd transpired today? I'm your co-host, Sadaf Hassan. And I'm Sarah Sahagian. Last week, we dissected Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's 2001 divorce. This week, in honor of Britney Spears and her newfound freedom from her psycho-domineering father, we're going to be digging into some of history's most notable momagers and dadagers. Sadaf, you first. Who's the first person who comes to mind when you think showbiz parent? For me, and this should really come as no surprise to our listeners, it's the one and only Chris Jenner, matriarch of one of the most famous American families. She is mom to Courtney, Kim, Chloe, and Rob Kardashian, all of whom she shares with the late Robert Kardashian Sr., aka the accomplished California lawyer who defended O.J. Simpson and put the family on the map back in the early 90s. She is also mom to Kendall and Kylie Jenner, who she shares with Olympian Caitlyn Jenner. Each are now household names. I don't have to tell you that. And who do we have to thank for that? Kim, absolutely. Her sex tape, definitely. The reality show, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, of course. But more than anyone, Kris Jenner. The woman manages each of her children and is directly involved with Kim and Kylie's respective empires, Courtney and Chloe's individual businesses, and Kendall's modeling career. That's a lot. And probably even Rob Sock business, but we don't talk about that. <laughs> Sarah, how much do you credit Chris for her children's accomplishments? A lot. I think she's the American version of Kate Middleton's mother. Ooh. I mean, she is a strategist. And and I say that with no disrespect to either Chris or Kate Middleton's mother. Um, I think that they both had a vision for their family. I'm not saying that either one predicted what their families would become, but they were able to push their children to use their talents and they were able to, I guess... <laughs> Motivate them to mo live up to their potential. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, before we dig into exactly how Chris does her magic, let's look at her background. She was California raised, which is not surprising because the woman is literally California incarnate. Mm -hmm. She's the eldest of two children and was raised by a single mom, MJ, who herself was a businesswoman and owned a children's clothing store called Shannon and Company, which she actually ran for 45 years. So it's in Chris's blood. Chris eventually took over the clothing store and opened another one of her own. And in order to market them, she had a bright idea. Why not get the family in front of a camera? I'm sure every parent has this idea at some point. Now, they had the personality, so she pitched the idea in 2007 to the other individual in Hollywood who doesn't sleep, Ryan Seacrest, of course, mm -hmm. who brought the concept to E! through his production company. Chris became an executive producer, and the show would go on for 20 seasons with multiple spinoffs and become one of the longest running reality series of all 
time. The family also has an upcoming reality series set to go on Hulu, just in case you're missing them. I definitely am. We can guess who engineered all of that. Now, in her 2011 memoir, Kris Jenner and All Things Kardashian, Kris wrote that after the premiere of the show, quote, I started to look at our careers like pieces on a chessboard. Every day I woke up and walked into my office and asked myself, what move do you need to make today? In another interview in 2011 for More Magazine, she said, quote, my job is to take my family's 15 minutes of fame and turn it into 30. It's an interesting two-sided mindset here because she wants to support her children and their dreams, but she also wants notoriety. Sarah, when you hear all of this, do you see Chris as a businesswoman or someone trying to squeeze out every dollar from her family? Uh, I don't know if she's necessarily a good parent. I think a good parent manager is often a poor parent. Um, I think she definitely sees her kids as commodities. Mm. Like she is a genius at being a momager, right? Like what, regardless of how you feel about her as a mother, she's a genius momager. There does seem to be an element of her where she does seem to care about them mm-hmm. and that she has always been really careful of their privacy. I mean, the way she releases stories, the way she protects them from the publicity at certain times. Mm. There's that, but it is tough to say, because if you're also putting your kids on a stage, how much are you really looking out for them when you know how cruel Hollywood is, and especially to these women, I mean. Yeah. So the moment Chris became iconic for her momager ways came in an infamous episode of Keeping Up, which sort of highlights what Sarah and I are talking about. It was when Kim admits to being uncomfortable at doing a nude Playboy shoot. Chris tells her, quote, they might never ask you again. Our show isn't on the air yet. No one knows who you are. Do it and you'll have these beautiful pictures to look at when you're my age. I mean, whose parents tells them to do a nude spread (laughs) for Playboy and encourages you to do it despite your discomfort? Mm -hmm. Now, this is where that mindset comes in. Chris was smart enough to use Kim's sex symbol reputation after her sex tape leaked, not only as a springboard for the reality series, but to catapult Kim into a whole other stratosphere of fame. She's also known to keep her kids working very, very hard. In that more interview, Chris said, quote, every single one of my girls gets up at the crack of dawn and works really hard. They work all day until they fall down. What a fun time to be a Kardashian. Yeah. Chris even once told Oprah that when she was worried the series was losing steam, she grew optimistic when her kids started having kids. In other words, when more characters were added to the yeah. story. It's as if in each baby she saw dollar signs. Yeah. And I guess that's for good reason, because Chris has tried to make a go at fame on her own. With her short-lived talk show, during which she had Kanye reveal the first photos of his and Kim's first child, North, just for publicity, why not? With her own also short-lived QVC clothing line and exercise equipment line, I bet you didn't know about that. And even with her own cookbook, and I don't know if it's just me, but when I think of Kris Jenner, I do not think of the kitchen. No. (laughs) But she's savvy enough now to know her kids are the selling point. So how much does she make? Well, 10% of their earnings. In a reunion special this summer for the series, the family got into the nitty-gritty of it all. Here's reunion host Andy Cohen quizzing Chris about the reputation she's developed as momager. You know, people think you're some devilish mastermind pulling all the strings, but is that what a manager does? No, I think a manager is definitely somebody who organizes all the chaos, you know, and and tries to come up with some great ideas and and work together and collab with the kids. I don't think, are you doing something behind my back? She just keeps looking at me and 
doing these weird faces. Now, in this reunion, Chris has no problem sharing that Kendall is the easiest to work with and Courtney is the hardest. Mm. <laughs> While rumor has it, Kylie is her favorite due to her billionaire status. Wouldn't it be funny if that's how our parents picked favorites, depending on how much money we made? <laughs> but it does sound like the girls do love her. I mean, they do have a really close relationship. But in some ways, I do feel like in that case, she makes for the ideal momager. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, I think that, listen, these people continue to work together. One of the signs of a dysfunctional parent-child management relationship is that the child moves on, right? That often happens. Yeah. This has not happened with any of the kids, to my knowledge. No. Correct me if I'm wrong. So it seems like while, I mean, who knows if she is a mom first or a manager first, but she seems to be able to do both roles well enough. I think you're so right. I also feel like if your children are going to be in show business, then why not be involved? Why not keep it in the family? Because there is a way of being open and honest together that you can't really have with anybody else. But then, of course, the argument is that Chris is the one who also pushed them into that place. They also grew up in Hollywood. They grew up as socialites. Mm -hmm. They were already doing that before she made that decision. So I think there are pros and cons to it. Ultimately, it does come down to well, as you said, Sarah, what is she prioritizing? And I think they're also really a sign of the times where we're pretty much commodifying our entire selves. And they're a good example of a family who's not really people to us anymore. They're mm -hmm. individual brands. At least I do think in some ways it's mm -hmm. good to have your mom being the one who's leading the way and maybe making it a little difficult for you and also being a little corruptive of who you are. Yeah. Hey, why not put your mom in that role instead of some other older white guy? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Why not? <laughs> now I'd say we've litigated the life and times of Kris Jenner enough for one day. Sarah, hit me with your first pick of a classic momager slash dadager. I'm going to start with the man who used to be the keeper of the beehive. And I say used to because in 2011, Beyonce shocked the world by firing her father, Matthew Knowles, from his job as her longtime manager. What is his story? What do we know about Matthew Knowles? Well, he's actually a really interesting fellow. With a bachelor's degree in business administration, he moved from Tennessee when he was a young person to Houston to work for the Xerox Corporation. There, he met Tina, a hairstylist and salon owner who is Beyonce's mother. The two of them got married, and soon they had baby Beyonce. She made her big debut in 1981. Born and raised in Houston, Beyonce Knowles was a musical prodigy whose talent immediately became apparent at age seven when she won a school talent show singing John Lennon's Imagine. And by age eight, she was part of an all-girls singing group called Girls Time. As Beyonce became more invested in her music career, so did Matthew. In 1995, he quit a well-paid job at Xerox as a sales manager to manage his daughter's career. The decision initially reduced the Knowles family's income by around half, but the move paid off. In 1996, Beyonce's girl group, now retitled Destiny's Child, was signed to Columbia Records. Matthew managed the entire group. However, his relationship with its members didn't stop at the professional. Not only was he Beyonce's dad, but bandmate Kelly Rowland actually moved in with the Knowles family in the early days of Destiny's Child. He was therefore Kelly's guardian, and she has often referred to Beyonce as her sister. 
Matthew also managed the career of Beyonce's biological sister, Solange. Also, Beyonce and Kelly have talked previously about how those were really intense rehearsal sessions they used to have, and Matthew would talk to them like they were grown women when they were doing these practice sessions. So there's a lot to be said for that. There are different ways that you can frame the way he mentored his daughter and managed her career. But the truth is, he was the one adding a lot of momentum. And, you know, if he had said, I'm sorry, you can be a musician when you're done school, get into a good music programming university, and then find yourself a manager. I still think she'd be successful because she's a musical genius, but her career would have had a very different trajectory and she might not be as world famous. This is somebody who's been world famous for multiple decades. And just that timeline would be different if she hadn't had the, some would say support, some would say pressure of her father, right? Like that's just a fact. Yeah, it's, again, it's very tricky. And I think the tough part too is that he quit his job. So he put his whole Mm -hmm. body into it. Yeah, That's where I think maybe it's too much. Like maybe don't make this a full-time thing where then your entire well-being and your family's entire well-being are Mm -hmm. banking on this child's talent. And this was a very motivated person who managed to succeed in the business world in the 70s and the 80s in a very hostile and racist environment. So this is somebody who is very driven, um, very intelligent, and obviously wanted a certain level of success for his family, but now he just kind of didn't have anything that wasn't his daughter's. So you can kind of see how his whole identity became wrapped up in her career, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So under Matthew's management, Destiny's Child achieved superstardom. But Beyonce was the breakout member of the group. In 2003, she released a solo album called Dangerously in Love that contained a track that actually ended up being a tribute to her father. Here's a sample from that song. I want my unborn son to be like my daddy. I want my husband to be like my daddy. There is no one else like my daddy. (laughs) Are these lyrics sweet or cringeworthy? Like, what do we think about this relationship so far? I'm so sorry, Beyonce. I find them a bit cringe. <laughs> I mean, but I'm also comforted to know that like me and like so many of us in this world, Beyonce has daddy issues and that's fine. Yeah, I'm cringing. How do you feel about it? I'm not the biggest fan of this song, uh, but <laughs> oh. artists evolve and grow and change over time. Let's con- Let's return to the story because I feel like she wouldn't have written those lyrics today. In 2011, the recording artist shocked the world by firing her father, the man that she had immortalized in song. It's unclear whether the professional split had anything to do with the tumult going on in the Knowles family. However, that could have been very disillusioning for her. In 2009, Tina and Matthew separated amidst rumors that he had fathered a love child with actress Alexandra White. That was a little boy who was born in February of 2010. In 2011 the Knowles divorce was finalized. So salacious stories aside, both Beyonce and Matthew suggested the decision to part ways in their professional lives was mutual. In March of 2011, Matthew told Us Weekly, quote, we mutually agreed to part ways in terms of me managing Beyonce. As my focus is in the investment of Music World Entertainment's growing gospel and inspirational music division. Sadaf, Is family strain and strife the inevitable byproduct of working with one's family for 20 years? And do you think that that might actually have been the cause of this split? 
Oh, absolutely. Definitely. I don't think you can plan to work with your family in any capacity without there being a little bit of strife. It happens. And I think there's pros and cons to that because you will always feel comfortable to say whatever you want to your sibling or your parent, whoever it might be. And that's great because honesty is great when you're working together, but it also means it's very easy to get on each other's nerves and um, things not working as well as you want it to. Members of my family have worked together and it definitely happens there. So it's a thing. And I think no matter how famous you are and how squeaky clean your image is in the media, there's definitely shit going on behind the scenes. There has to be. Yeah, I think Matthew is a human person with flaws, just like we are all human people. But it seemed like when she was younger, Beyonce really idolized him. I mean, if you listen to the song Daddy, if that is an actual representation of how she felt and not just performance, when you start to see him as a real person who has made mistakes, that kind of erodes the relationship and you have to completely rebuild it from scratch. But then you can't really work together in the interim, right? Like you don't have any trust anymore. I don't think so either. And I want to mention the song Daddy Lessons, which she had on Lemonade, Mm -hmm. which came out years later. And I think it's an interesting parallel to the very cringe daddy. Mm -hmm. And in Daddy Lessons, she sings about Matthew. It's not very subtle. And she compares him a lot to her current relationship with, of course, her husband, Mm Jay-Z. And she talks about how her father sort of warned her about men like him. And it does seem to suggest that she's poking at the infidelity in their family a little bit. So I think she pulls him off the pedestal that she put him on in Daddy, but he's obviously still vaunted by her in some way because she's still saying, here's this man that I love who I'm always going to appreciate, but dot, dot, dot. And it does seem like now her loyalties really lie towards the women in her family. It's a really interesting trajectory. And as we all know, if you are a Beyonce fan, she gets really honest on Lemonade. Yep. And that's a really interesting bit of it, I think. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of authenticity that comes in her career after the break with her father. And yeah. she talks in her documentary, Life is But a Dream, a lot about that, about how she wanted to be a little bit more vulnerable in her music. She wanted to be less commercial. Well, I mean, not necessarily less commercial, but she wanted to be less obsessed with commercial success. And that was something that Matthew really valued. And she wanted to prioritize art, which, I mean, ended up being a very commercially viable move for her because Lemonade was a huge hit. So in 2013, to promote Life is But a Dream, her HBO documentary, which I highly recommend, Beyonce sat down for an interview with Oprah. And at this time, she addressed the decision to let go of her father as an employee. How hard was it to come to that decision? One of the hardest things I've ever done. Definitely, you know, someone you love, someone that's given you life, someone that's done such a fantastic job. You know, it's it's hard, mm-hmm. but it's a part of life and it's a part of growth. And I had to just tell myself at some point you have to to be the adult that that your father has raised mm-hmm. you to be and prepared you to be. So adding to rumors of a rift between you know, Matthew and his daughters, we'll go back to that. Beyonce and Solange both skipped their father's 2013 wedding. Um, He married Gina Avery in 2013. Neither attended. And the official story was that both stars had previous engagements. And that's believable. Is it, Sarah? The part that makes it unbelievable is they're established enough that they could just adjust their schedules, right? Like, these are two highly influential people in the music industry who are, 
you know, I don't think they need to pay their dues anymore. They can tell their management, I need to go see my dad's wedding. Even people wearing ankle bracelets get to take some time to go to a funeral or a wedding. Yeah. You know, like they could have done it if they wanted to. This is an absolute lie. They did not want to be there. Let's be honest here. Um, And frankly, I don't blame them. If my dad cheated on my mom and then went on and married another woman and there was all this drama, I don't know if I'd want to be there. <laughs> So there is reason to believe that Matthew's relationship with his daughters may have improved in recent years. Matthew made an appearance on Solange's uh, Grammy-winning 2016 album, A Seat at the Table. So, you know, that... A great album. Great album. It's a great album, and that's great for him, too. That's good for Matthew. Solange has explained that reconnecting with her father while working on the album was cathartic and healing for her. Here's a great quote from Essence magazine. She says, quote, I think I have a much clearer idea of the trauma that he experienced and how it felt like it was then generationally passed on to me, both kind of existing in the white spaces as an only and how much that can really shape and mold your experience of the world, race, and identity. So one thing that Matthew did that's incredibly inspirational is in 2019, he revealed that he had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Well, the first call was to my family. Mm -hmm. That was the very first call because this is genetics. It also means that my kids have a higher chance, a higher risk. Even my grandkids have a, a, a higher risk. Good for you, Matthew. And today he appears to be in good health and he's also launched a podcast. He's a fellow podcaster. His iHeartRadio podcast deals with a lot of important topics from racism to entrepreneurship and the music industry. It seems like they're in a healthier place now, this entire family. Um, and I'm happy for them. And that's and that's the best way. They're all happy. And Tina has moved on and well, and she's happily married now. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah, love it. Yeah, it seems like everyone is is doing okay. And that is so rarely the ending to a gossip story. So that's great. Yeah, the Knowles are not a family to worry about. We do not have to worry about no, the No, no. They're no. solid. They're solid. They're okay. They're fine. Okay, so why don't we take a look at Joe Jackson, who I think might be one of the most scary dadagers that are out there. Father of Michael, Janet, Jermaine, Jackie, Tito, LaToya, the whole clan, if you can name all of those siblings, well done. Um, he's the man who The Guardian actually once described as, quote, the most monstrous father in pop. Chilling. Joe grew up in Indiana and California. He married Catherine Jackson, who was the mother of the famous family in 1949. And during much of this time, he had dreams of becoming a professional boxer and actually wasn't half bad. But to support his family, which would eventually grow to include a whopping 10 children, could never be me, Joe was a steel worker and later a crane operator. He worked multiple jobs, actually, to make ends meet while Catherine took care of the kids and took on a part-time job at Sears. In the early 50s, he even had his own blues band called the Falcons with his brother Luther, but they were never able to score a record deal and eventually parted ways. 
said. And soon enough, like the other managers we've discussed, he saw his children as possible business opportunities and extensions of himself. This is usually where the family starts to take a wrong turn. Um, When he noticed his boys taking an interest in his instruments, he pushed Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, Marlon, and Michael to form a band and put them through grueling rehearsals. They, of course, would become the Jackson Five, who I do love. Joe began booking gigs for the Jackson Five across the city, and then in Chicago, and then in New York. He clearly wanted to take over. In 1969, he landed them a record deal with Motown Records. At this point, he relocated the family to L.A., sat in on every recording session, and basically became a very intense helicopter parent. Now, while the Jackson Five exploded with countless number ones, including, if you happen to live in a cave, I want you back, ABC, and I'll be there. God, thinking about those songs, I just love it. Now, Joe also had the rest of his children perform in casinos and resorts wherever he could book them. They were very young, by the way. They were in Mm. their preteens. He formed his own record label and would soon set Janet up as a solo artist. He wanted them to be the next Osmond family. And although we know now that they became way, way bigger, with Michael and Janet becoming music legends, Joe ruled with an iron fist. Although he was vaunted for creating a family of incredible musicians, By the 80s, that image started to slip as Michael started to share details of what being managed by his father was actually like. He claimed that since they were young children, Joe would physically and emotionally abuse them, not only through endless, brutal rehearsals, but with whippings and name-calling. He told Oprah in 1993 that he was incredibly lonely and his days were spent getting tutored for three hours and then recording until bedtime, basically until his legs couldn't move and dance anymore. He didn't have friends. He didn't get to play. He didn't even get to go to the movies. None of it was a choice for him or his siblings. Oprah suggested Michael's childhood was lost, but he and his siblings have often said their strict upbringing is what gave them the discipline to have the careers that they did. Here's Michael speaking to Martin Bashir in 2003 about the abuse. And so we, not only were we practicing, we were nervous rehearsing because he sat in the chair and he had this bell in his hand. And if you didn't do it the right way, he would tear you up, really get you. And I, I got it a lot of times, but I think my brother Marlon got it the most because he had a hard time at first, and he tried so hard. And uh, it was always, do it like Michael, do it like Michael, you know, but the others were very nervous, and I was nervous too, you know, because um, he was tough. How often would he beat you? Mm, too much. It's such a tragic confession, and what made it complicated is that Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, and Marlon denied Michael's claims, though that always seemed out of a kind of deep-seated respect for Joe. If you go back and listen to any of those interviews, you'll hear it. And I mean, even when Michael would make these confessions, he would always sort of double back and say, but I really love my father, but I understand why he did it. Now, Sarah, when you hear that and knowing the arc that Michael's life took, what do you make of the impact that his father had on him and the fact that his siblings also had another story? Families are incredibly complicated. Yeah. And it, I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, um, but this in many ways mirrors what I've read about narcissistic family structures, where there's often a parent who picks their golden child and then they sort of rule with an iron fist and they have other children who are scapegoats and there's so much emotional manipulation 
going on and so much triangulation going on that all the children have different experiences and some have different levels of fear of their parents. And so some will speak out and maybe understand that things are wrong and others are so manipulated by the parent that they can't see it or they're, they understand that everything that's happening is wrong, but they're hoping to curry favor with the parent by supporting them. So I don't know, this just seems like the typical story of an abusive parent um, from what I've read about it. And it's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And I think, of course, we can't forget the authoritarian relationship that a parent and a child have. The kids will naturally want to protect their parent in most cases. They don't want to bring down their father's name. And at the same time, I'm sure they didn't want to dent the family brand. Because at that point, up until that interview, those interviews with Oprah and Martin Bashir, nobody knew that Joe was like this behind the scenes. So this was a massive bombshell at the time. And here's the tricky thing. Joe himself admitted to the BBC in 2003, quote, I whipped him with a switch and a belt. I never beat him. You beat someone with a stick. Fascinating logic, Joe. Yeah. Now, in that interview with Oprah, Michael said that his father made him so frightened that he would sometimes regurgitate in anticipation of seeing him. To this, Joe said, quote, he regurgitates all the way to the bank. That's right. I don't even have words for that. Now, in that same interview, Joe expressed a great deal of homophobia and just came off generally abrasive as he did whenever he spoke to the media, which didn't really make his story, it didn't really help sell a better story for him. And Catherine, Michael's mother, excused the abuse, saying it was common in that era. And here's Joe himself speaking to Larry King and saying it comes down to the simple definition of beating, which he incomprehensibly traces back to slavery. Now, the media keep hollering about it, saying that I beat my son. That's not true. You know where this beating started? Beating started in the slavery days. They used to beat the slaves, and then they used to torture them. That's where this beating started at, the, at these uh, slave masters. And that's where that come from. But, hey, there's a lot of people in America, Larry. A lot of people in America spank the kids, you know. They, if they say they don't, they're lying. They're lying. And Michael was never beaten. I mean, you never be okay. at all. It's a lot of contradiction. And, um, you know, there's no difference between spanking and using a belt. Let's just put that out there. Now, while Michael's own legacy has been greatly marred over the years, it doesn't take away from the disturbing way he and his siblings were raised, which is highly likely to have led to some of the eccentricities in his later years, including his desperate need to recover his childhood, even down to the countless cosmetic procedures he had done on his nose. As the story goes, Joe not only often told Michael he was ugly, but particularly hit out at his nose and the size of it, nicknaming him, quote, Big Nose. Eventually, Michael formed a kind of tick where he would repeatedly touch and cover his nose. So it's hard to believe that it didn't lead to his massive self-consciousness and also poor body image, which he held well into adulthood. And by the mid-80s, around the time of Thriller's release, Michael continued his career outside of his father's shadow. So he also set up boundaries the way Beyonce did. But he would be answering questions about Joe for the rest of his life until his untimely death in 2000. Nine, of course. And in 2013, after discussing Michael's troubled life, Joe told CNN when questioned about any regrets, quote, I'm glad I was tough because look what I came out with. I came out with some kids that everybody loved all over the world and they treated everybody right. Now, the question becomes, although Joe certainly did help build legends who came to define pop music, 
What is his legacy today, Sarah? I do think there are ways to raise talented children besides intimidating them and physically and emotionally abusing them. I mean, the the argument that Catherine makes that this was normal at the time, like, I mean, it was more normal, but it sounds like this was happening to an extent that was not normal even for its time because it was so very damaging to these kids. I I don't know. What do you think about his legacy, Sadaf? Again, very, very complicated. I don't think discipline is necessary. And I wish that Joe would have been somebody who actually would openly discuss it, considering he contradicted himself so many times. And also that Michael siblings would have spoken up and maybe spoken up for him because I know that he felt really alone just in making that confession. And I think another thing too, though, Sarah, and I'm curious what you think about this, is that there does seem to be a pattern in all of these parents we've discussed so far who had their own wish in being somebody who would have these careers, but they didn't manage to do it. So they used their children to be able to achieve it. I mean, we know that Joe wanted to start his own band and he couldn't. So he did it through his kids. Yes, that is a pattern that we see in a lot of cases. I'm not going to say all cases, but in a lot of cases. At the same time, This is controversial because I'm kind of sort of mildly going to defend the idea of living through your kid's showbiz career. Let's hear it. Parents all the time, and it is not healthy, but all the time live through their children in big and small ways, right? Yes. Whether it's pressuring your kid to get married so that you can plan their wedding and have this big spectacular day that you kind of orchestrated and they're part of. Um, I have lots of friends that happen too. Or pressuring them to become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or an accountant just because you did it or you would have liked to have done it, right? There are so many ways ordinary people um, are pressured that we don't hear about because they aren't famous, so they don't tell Oprah about it, right? And so this is very normal parent behavior, and it's never okay, but I do think our society kind of scapegoats parents in the entertainment industry for the sins of parents everywhere, because this is a tendency that many moms and dads have, right? This is something, a temptation many people give into to try to redo their own lives through their children. Yeah, it just seems natural. I mean, I know my parents have it a little bit. I know most of my friends' parents have it. It's just kind of there. Obviously, some parents take it a little too far and decide to Mm -hmm. push you all the way onto a stage and just be every single thing that they weren't. But in some cases, it can definitely just lead to a very abusive streak in this case with Joe and his many children, not a single one of whom he spared. What a guy. No, and the abuse is never okay. I do want to make that clear that if you are hitting your kids, whether they're in the entertainment industry or you just really, really want them to become an accountant and you're trying to motivate them, that's never okay. I'm just trying to say that this isn't unique to the entertainment industry. 100%. And as you said, we don't know all the stories out there. I think Joe definitely stands as the absolute worst example. And what I think would be the worst thing is to correlate that with the level of success that his children had. There's no correlation. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. There's no relationship. It's just all around bad. (laughs) Now, I think the Mm -hmm. time has come. It's over to Sarah for a look at the venerable Dina Lohan. Okay, we're moving on to Dina Lohan. In 1985, the 23-year-old Dina Sullivan married Michael Lohan, a sometimes Wall Street trader who inherited a family pasta business. Dina has said she danced as a Radio City Music Hall Rockette when she was younger, but the Rockettes themselves deny that claim, so I'm not sure if that's actually (laughs) part of her life story. (laughs) Can I just say, him being a sometimes Wall Street trader with a family pasta business so checks out. Her not really being a Rockette so checks out. This is just hilarious already. 
this story is a little sketchy from the beginning. Yeah. In 1986, Dina, who had changed her last name to Lohan, gave birth to a baby girl named Lindsay. And it really wasn't long before Dina made the jump from mom to momager. At age three, Lindsay was signed by Ford Models, and the tot appeared in more than 60 commercials for such big names as Calvin Klein and Pizza Hut. In the first stories we talked about, the kids at least were old enough to show an interest in things like, you know, in music and to show that they have talent. Right. Dina did not wait for Lindsay to reveal that she had talent. I hate to judge for the most part, but this is definitely an area where I just have to say, okay, you're not, this is, this is selfish desires. And this is you taking a kid who's really just cute. That's all they have going for them at that point and thinking, hey, I could make some dollars out of this kid. Let me throw them on the stage in front of a camera, blah, blah, blah. I just, I can't, that to me just does not check out. What do you think, Sarah? I do think Lindsay is talented. Yeah. But that wasn't apparent when she was just a beautiful baby, right? Um, And so it did seem like even more so than any of the parents we've discussed, Dina might have been vicariously living through Lindsay or planning to do that. Yes. Now, the Lohan family lived in an affluent corner of Long Island, but these well-heeled origins didn't protect the family from trauma. When Lindsay was only four years old, Michael went to jail for stock fraud. He was in prison between 1990 and 1993, and as painful as incarceration is for a family, things were not exactly functional when Michael was free. Both Lindsay and Dina alleged that Michael was abusive to Dina. A 2013 article from the New York Daily News quotes Dina as saying, Michael beat the hell out of me. Dina's claims are backed up by medical records that prove she was treated for blunt trauma to the face on December 4th, 1986. Dina also alleges Michael raped her, which he denies. Um, But, you know, we know that a denial doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. Right. As horrible as her home life was, young Lindsay radiated joy on her movie screen. As Lindsay transitioned into her teen years, she became an even more bankable star with movies like Freaky Friday and Mean Girls, both of which came out in 2004. By age 19, she was earning $7.5 million a picture. As her daughter's manager, Dina received a cut of everything she made. Of course. Lindsay was also becoming an infamous L.A. socialite, and her partying soon escalated into a problem with substance use. In response to criticism about her inability to help Lindsay get on the straight and narrow, Dina said in 2007, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, which is kind of the opposite of an appropriate analogy, given that Lindsay definitely was drinking and probably too much. Yeah, it's a pretty horrible quote. Yeah. One thing we've learned over time when it comes to child stars, the ones who are successful are the ones who have a really grounding and connected family base. That's always going to be the case. And Lindsay, of course, didn't and still doesn't really for the most part. So I do think there's a connection there. So for her part, the idea that anyone would fault her mother for her problems upset Lindsay deeply. In a 2010 profile, Lindsay told Vanity Fair, quote, that sickens me. It's just disgusting because my mom's amazing. But in 2008, Dina made a bid for even more fame. Living Lohan was a TV show that premiered on E! in 2008. Much of the show centered around Dina's attempts to launch the career of Lindsay's teenage sister, Allie, an aspiring singer and actress. The show aired for a single season and received universally terrible reviews. One serious indictment came from Anderson Cooper, who had this to say, quote, I can't believe I'm wasting a minute of my life watching these 
horrific people. <laughs> it wasn't good. I can stomach most reality television, and that one was not good. There was nothing to be gained. <laughs> no, it was. I watched an episode or two, and in some ways, what was so offensive about it was the brazenness. Like, Lindsay was very publicly struggling, yes. right? And struggling with the fallout from being a child star and struggling with partying in the public eye and the press and the scrutiny. And then she's like, okay, I'm going to go take Allie and make her a child star too. <laughs> that made me feel like she really didn't care about her role as mother. No, and again, it's a grab at fame when you see it for yourself. It's a lot like... Jamie Lynn Spears releasing a memoir right now during Britney Spears' struggles. But again, that's a story for another time. Mm-hmm. So in recent years, Dina has appeared to be struggling with substance issues, and that's resulted in arrest for driving under the influence in 2013 and 2020. Um, and I have, I mean... Addiction is a disease. Substance use issues can happen to anyone. They do not make you a bad person. So I hope she gets help for those demons that she has um, faced in recent years. Regarding Dina's romantic life, things are going weirdly. Dina is in a seven-year on-again, off-again relationship with a man named Jesse Nadler. In 2019, when she was a contestant on Celebrity Big Brother, Dina confessed she's only ever interacted with Nadler online or over the phone. According to her, this is not because she's being catfished, but because Nadler lives in San Francisco, where he cares for his ailing mother. Uh, Let's listen to the clip. I'm in New York. He's in another state. It's just, it's personal. Have y'all met? No, we will. I'm so concerned. And I hope there is a mother and an ailing mother at that. I just... <laughs> Sir, what do you make of this? It's just so hard with Dean and Lohan to know how to feel. Like, should you give her your empathy or should you just... Should your response be all judgment? Like, what what does she deserve? Or is it a mix of the two? Is it a mix of empathy and judgment that she deserves? Which is... Probably what everyone deserves, frankly, actually. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's both. But you are way more generous than I am, Sarah. I just, I think of Dina Lohan and I get a headache. And I just, if we never hear from this woman again, I'll be thrilled. She did Celebrity Big Brother for Crying Out Loud in 2019. Her star has faded. Mm. If you have experienced addiction, if you have put your children through these difficult periods and Hollywood has not been kind to you, my God, take a break. Step out of it for a bit. Maybe get a job outside of the industry. It's not the worst thing in the world. Just saying, Dina, it's okay. I think the problem with Dina is that she never really did have a real job. She made her daughter her job, right? Like she had a kid in her early 20s and then immediately went to work making Lindsay's career happen. So what would she even do? Sarah, how dare you? She was a raquette. It doesn't matter (laughs) if they deny it. (laughs) She'd go be a raquette again. (laughs) Well, my final verdict for all of these momagers and dadagers is, first of all, maybe don't do it. (laughs) Second of all, if you feel like you must, wait until your child is at a decent age and maybe can drive a car and drink and do all of those things and then ask them if this is even something they want to do and have a proclivity for and then go for it. And I don't know, hire a team. Don't be the only one who's giving them these multiple demands And while you're trying to balance being a parent and a manager. It's just... More often than not, I think we've seen it's a recipe for disaster. It's very rare that it goes well. Absolutely. I think 
what I have learned from this story is that, like, I mean, all of these stories collectively, is that as a parent, it is very important to have your own life and your own dreams so that you yes. don't project those onto your child. And that goes for parent managers as well as for people who don't want their kids to be in show business and don't want them to be famous. We all need to stop living vicariously through our children. Like, I get the tendency and I personally am trying to resist that temptation to do that. It is very human to look at your kid and see that they have an aptitude for like, I don't know, playing with Play-Doh and being like, they're going to be a surgeon. But the truth is like, we need to stop projecting our own dreams onto our kids. They'll be what they're going to be. Give your kids the space for the love of God. And that goes for every parent. Mm-hmm. Give your kids the space. That is yeah. a great closing thought. And there we go. So now if you want to hear more from me, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Sarah Sahagian Sadaf. Where can our listeners find you? Listeners can find me at underscore Sadaf Asad. And if you liked this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe so other listeners can find us. Thanks for listening. 